I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Today we're lifting our spirits by looking to the skies. We're learning about which birds to look out for over the next few months and exploring how to encourage them into our gardens. I've got a very angry robin because there's obviously another robin trying to muscle in on his territory. So he's um, going around puffing his chest out a lot at the minute. So it's just lovely to watch actually. Gazing up into the treetops in the UK, you could spot robins, goldfinches or blue tits. But in Mexico and South America, you might spy something altogether quite different. It doesn't have any attachment to its host plant, it doesn't root into the soil, and it's not parasitic on its host plant, so it doesn't get any nutrients from it or even any water from it. We'll be reaching into the intriguing world of air plants. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS. I'm Fiona Davison. to an area nestled snugly between two famous parts of the UK landscape, the Lake District and the Yorkshire Dales. We're heading 850 feet up in Cumbria's Howgill Fells. Weasdale nurseries offer over a thousand different and often unusual hardy trees and shrubs. I thought it'd be interesting to hear from their director, Andrew Forsyth, about life at such a unique and challenging growing spot. So the main challenges growing here obviously are the altitude. With every 100 feet elevation change, there's about a 1 degree Fahrenheit drop in ambient temperature. So the main effect of this is that we actually have quite a short growing season. Summer finishes much sooner here than it does, for instance, if we're further south on the Fylde coast in Lancashire, where you've got nice deep rich soils and the ameliorating effect of the coast. We're also, because we're at our elevation, if you go back to your old geography lessons, we've got the, the sort of impoverished upland soils. All our good soil ends up 30, 40 miles downriver. So up here, we've got about a spade's depth of soil over glacial boulder clay and just a typical upland, slightly impoverished soil. So painting quite a bleak picture, but, it, but it, they are quite tough growing conditions. Most of the stock that we're growing here does tend to look after itself and doesn't need a lot of help. One of the real discoveries was Ulnus rubra, the red alder, and that grows phenomenally well with us. Very, very wind firm. All the alders are very rooty, so they've got a tremendously high root-to-shoot ratio. So they stay still in the ground, because obviously if you've got newly planted stock, 
and until the roots have got bedded in, quite often we're having to go around replanting the stock in early spring if we've had these gales in May. Something like the red alder, it just sits there and gets on with it and we can see three, four, even five feet of growth in one of the more exceptional summers from it. So very successful and very good shelterbelt tree. Conifers tend to like it here as well. Suga heterophylla, the western hemlock spruce, is extremely happy. Norway spruce, Sitka spruce, a lot, lot of those sort of forest trees that live in the temperate zones. I think if you're growing in challenging conditions like ours, you've got a garden at altitude or on the, the side of a hill, shelter is absolutely everything. So get some walls in. If you haven't got any walls, a wall's a good one to take the the high snowfalls, for instance, and get hedges in. Shelter belts and hedges are so effective at slowing the wind speed down. And thinking of these, how to design these, has changed over the years. And now I think we've got a much better understanding of what makes a good shelter belt. You'll soon get to know where your prevailing wind is from. And for most of the UK, that is from the southwest. And you want to be thinking about a graduated shelter belt. So on the outer edge, you want to put things like hawthorn, blackthorn, hazels, low-profile shrubby plants. Behind those, you have the, the sort of medium-growing broadleaf trees, things like silver birch, for instance, and alders. And then you can start moving to the taller trees, the taller broadleaves. A larch is a really good windbreak one for that intermediate part of the windbreak because they lose the leaves in the winter, but they're very twiggy, so they start to break up the wind. And then evergreens after that, so your, your pines and your spruces and other evergreens and other taller growing trees. So what you're doing is you're easing the wind over your increasingly heightening canopy, which then gives you really deep level of protection on the far side of that shelter belt. If you've only got, a, for instance, a neighbour's land is right on your border, then think about a, like a good hawthorn hedge or a beech hedge, something very twiggy. Beech and hornbeam are very good because they keep a lot of leaves in the winter they're more effective windbreak than something like a Lelandii hedge. So shelter is everything. We are facing a new challenge over the coming decades. There's a very obvious shift in the climate patterns. It does seem to be getting wetter. We're going to have to be thinking about the species we're growing. Grisdale Forest in Cumbria, by 2050, will have a climate akin to that of a line just south of Rome which was a fairly sobering thought for all of us. I've just been asked if we've ever considered moving lower down, but definitely not, no. I'm just very glad everyone likes to live where they do because it suits us very nicely here with a, a, at altitude and in these conditions and the air quality you get at, at this sort of elevation. Next, we get to grips with air plants. They're part of a group known as epithytes. These adaptable species attach themselves to tree branches and even electricity and telephone lines rather than growing in soil. Here's RHS advisor Charlotte Sweeney to shed light on this fascinating group of plants. So basically an epiphyte is a plant that grows on another plant for physical support. 
So it doesn't have any attachment to its host plant. It doesn't root into the soil and it's not parasitic on its host plant. So it doesn't get any nutrients from it or even any water from it. The most common one you've probably come across are moth orchids, so Phalaenopsis. And in their natural habitat, which is tropical jungles, they live in the branches of the trees and they use photosynthesis. So they harvest energy from the sun and they collect moisture using aerial roots which hang down from those tree branches. Other epiphytes use specialised structures, so they have little cups or scales on their leaves which catch water and they absorb it from the atmosphere that way. Other examples you might have come across are things like bromeliads, ferns, air plants like tillandsia, and more close to home, things like lichens and mosses. For a gardener, you'll be aware that most of those can be grown as potted plants. So it's quite normal to see moth orchids in the garden centre that are grown in pots. You can grow them quite unusually, so attached to bark or suspended from the ceiling. But if you wanted to grow them in a pot, and they happily will grow in a pot, they just need some slightly special conditions versus your more terrestrial or ground-dwelling plants. And really that's just a very open textured compost. So for an orchid, you would use a proprietary orchid compost. They need regular misting. It's important not to bury all of their roots and they don't like to sit in water because they wouldn't naturally sit in water in their natural habitat. We'll be hearing more from Charlotte over the coming weeks as she'll be back with more botanical insights. I'm really lucky. I can do really low effort bird watching just by watching the birds out of our back bedroom window and we can look down at our bird feeder and I really enjoy looking at the robins and all their acrobatics in the winter. Someone else who's interested in keeping track of winter visitors is Kate Risley, the head of Garden Bird Watch at the British Trust for Ornithology. Garden Bird Watch is a national network of garden observers. The project aims to find out how, when and why Birds and other animals use our gardens. I'll let Kate explain why this is so important. Garden Birdwatch is a year-round survey. Um, so, and we have now around 20,000 people all over the country who every week tell us the birds that they see in their garden. And it's very simple, it's very easy to take part. You just have to say, these are the birds I've seen. And what that tells us is on a national scale how birds are using gardens because birds don't live in gardens all the time. Some birds do, um, they'll kind of stay there all year round, but most birds live in other habitats in the wider countryside and they come in and use the resources in our gardens, which are really important. So these might be things like water, it might be berries, it might be shelter, and very importantly, of course, is the food that we put out in our bird feeders. So all these thousands of people over the country are telling us what the birds in their garden are using, when they come into their gardens, what times of year, what species. So we're really looking at how things are changing over the course of the year, what things are important to birds at different times of the year. And the survey's actually been running for 25 years, so a very long-term study, and we can see what's changed over that time. So this is really about trying to help work out how we can best provide for garden birds. We have seen a lot of changes in 25 years. Really interestingly, what some of our research has shown is the effects of what we've done and the decisions that we make, most importantly in things like what kinds of food we're putting out. 
if you think back 25 years, actually, I was reading through last night. I've got a little naturalist guide that I was reading through with my young son. And it was all about, you know, what you can do to help birds in your garden. But it belonged to me when I was a child. I remember it. And I was really interested because this is what I'm interested in professionally now. And back in the 1980s, it said fats and peanuts. Like they were the only things that were mentioned. And the only birds that were mentioned were things like blue tits and great tits. And they're the kind of things that mainly used to use food in gardens. Whereas now we put out a whole different range of foods. People put out lots of different kinds of seeds, which are more like natural foods for birds. So we've got a lot more things like finches, in particular things like goldfinches, now use gardens a lot more, drastically more than they did 25 years ago. So that's an effect of what we've done. And that's the kind of the things that are coming out in our data. We've seen some things that have declined in that time. So, for example, we used to see birds like song thrushes a lot more in gardens than we do today. And this is due to a sort of wider scale decline in the countryside, meaning not so many are coming into gardens. There's also things like green finches used to be more common and now they're becoming quite rare. And this is because they've been suffering from disease. There's been a disease that's been affecting them and it's actually transmitted at bird feeders. So we're actually seeing some things that people can make a difference about by how they behave in their garden. For example, making sure that bird feeders are clean and that people are watching out for signs of disease because we think that one of the reasons we're not seeing as many greenfinches is because they're, they're transmitting diseases to each other, you know, possibly at bird feeders. So at this time of year, people actually notice in the autumn, late summer, that not so many birds visit gardens. And we get a lot of calls that say, you know, there aren't any birds in my garden. What's happened? Maybe something in particular has happened. People think that something drastic has happened to birds. But all of it is that in late summer and early autumn, there's so much food available in the countryside. You know, there's berries, there's nuts, it's warm. They're not desperate for high energy food to keep them going overnight. So they don't need to come to gardens. Whereas when it gets colder in winter, then, you know, this is probably about the time when things actually start to come back into gardens a bit more. So over the winter, you might see things like long-tailed tits, which completely leave gardens in the summer, but then they come back in the winter and they always travel around in little groups and they're very cute, tiny little birds with long tails. And they do always travel around in little groups. So you have a whole load of them all come in at once. They've got a very distinctive little call. So once you know what that call sounds like, you can kind of hear them out the window and go out and see them. So that's a nice one to look out for in winter. Other things are winter visitors, such as bramblings and thrushes, such as red wings and field fairs. They're things that only come to this country in the winter. So they're always great to look out for in the winter in the garden. Siskins are a tiny little finch, a little yellow finch that comes into gardens in very variable numbers. Some years they're really high, some years they're really low, and they normally peak in gardens in around February. I've always been interested in wildlife and obviously birds out the window is just the easiest way for anyone to be involved in the natural world. And I think once people start noticing that they've got wild animals that they can see from their window and start to really appreciate their lives, then you just get more and more interested. And I think for me, the fact that when you look at the birds on your bird feeder, 
they're living a much wider existence. They don't just live there all the time. Some of them might have come from another country or at least in other sort of wider parts of the countryside and they've chosen to come into your garden and you're really seeing a little bit of wildness coming to your garden from the wider countryside, which I think is amazing. Risley. If you're interested in taking part in the BTO's Garden Bird Watch, do have a look at their website, bto.org. And if you've been inspired to welcome more feathered visitors into your garden space, but you're wondering how to do it, well I know just the person. Over to the RHS Gardening Advisor, Nikki Barker. Coming into the winter, a really good thing to do is to leave seed heads on plants. So that's a lot of herbaceous perennials that have lovely seeds that birds like. Things like Hylotelephium, which is ice plant, the sedum. They love Verbena bonariensis, ornamental grasses. And I leave the heads on some of my sunflowers as well because sparrows and finches, nuthatches, they all like that. And what they don't eat, they kind of spread around the garden and they self-seed and just come up next year. So um, it's sort of two for the price of one with that. Leave your windfall apples down as well because lots of birds like fruit. So thrushes and blackbirds particularly, they like love eating fruit. If you don't want to leave them on the ground, actually just pick them up and put them on your bird table. In terms of bird feed, here's what I would recommend. A really good quality mixed seed is a good way to start because they're put together to attract lots of different birds. So you can buy seeds that are specific to to different birds if you've got kids then think about making up your own fat snacks for them putting seeds in sort of balls of fat that can be all sorts of things lard birds do need a certain amount of fat over winter and it's quite a, a fun thing to do if you're buying fat snacks well you must make sure you take the plastic netting off them that can be quite harmful to the birds so do make sure you do that importantly Remember that birds do need water as well. So if you've got a bird bath or something, that's great. But if we get a particularly cold spell where water's frozen, even if you just put a tray of water out somewhere for them to drink, then that will help too. My favourite birds are my, I say they're my jackdaws, they're not my jackdaws, but I have got a huge family of jackdaws that nest in a big ash tree at the bottom of my garden. And they're very chatty, they do that chat noise they're very organized about when they're feeding from all the bird feeders and things so they do make me laugh and I think that's really nice especially in the winter and I've got all sorts of birds come into the garden I've got a very angry robin because there's obviously another robin trying to muscle in on his territory so he's um, going around puffing his chest out a lot at the minute so it's just lovely to watch actually especially when I'm working from home, looking out of the window and seeing the birds actually does make things a lot better. There's lots of things we can do in the garden that encourage wildlife that's also then good for the garden. So birds, they predate on insects, a lot of them, and some of those insects might be caterpillars, for example, that we don't want in our garden. So if you're encouraging the predator, you're going to have less problems with the pests. So think about planting to encourage birds, 
planting for berries, for example, is great in the autumn. They love pyracantha berries, cotoneaster berries, elderberries. And there's some beautiful purple leaf cultivars of elderberries, the Sambucus eva. So you get beautiful foliage, beautiful flowers, and, and the birds love the berries as well. So there's lots of planting that you can do, particularly wall planting, where you're creating nesting sites for them as well. Thanks, Nikki. We've spent a lot of time in this episode up in the clouds, so maybe it's time to touch down now. And I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you'd like to learn more on anything that we've explored today, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. So until next time, it's goodbye from me, Fiona Davison. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.